0: In the wake of the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, the US has seen a spate of protests outraged at the police's treatment of black Americans. In this episode, we take a look at the current movement, the history of police brutality and civil rights, as well as how the topics of race and racism are discussed in the media. This is Office Hours with DPT and I'm your host, Thru Vuppel. The date is the 12th of June, 2020, and our guest today is Matthew Delmont, Sherman Fairchild Distinguished Professor of History at Dartmouth College. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Great to have you. So before we get started, um, I'm sure our listeners would like to know more about your areas of research uh, as well as your areas of expertise, if you could just run us through that um, rather quickly.
1: Sure. Um, So I'm a historian. Uh, I focus primarily on African-American history and more specifically on the history of civil rights from the 1950s and 60s um, all the way up to the present. Um, My research today has really focused on how uh, media covers the civil rights movement and the kind of stories we tell about the history. Uh, And right now I'm working on a book on African-Americans in World War I, I'm sorry, World War II, uh, both at home and abroad.
0: Thank you for that. And I'd like to start our discussion by um, looking at an article that you wrote recently in the Washington Post, in which you state that institutional statements of support for the Black Lives Matter movement have largely rung hollow. Could you explain your view on that?
1: Yeah, so one thing I've been struck by in the last couple of weeks is just how many different institutions, uh, companies, individuals have issued statements, uh, statements of solidarity or statements of concern about Black Lives Matter. Um, And I think a lot of them have rung hollow because a lot of these People, institutions, organizations—they don't have a strong track record of supporting civil rights or, or really caring about Black people in their own organizations. Um, I think there have been some exceptions to that; uh, that people have made some some strong, quality statements. But by and large, a lot of these places don't have really good track records of supporting Black employees. They don't have a lot of Black people in leadership positions. And then, even more than that, a lot of the language is—I guess I would term it—mushy. Um, they don't really address the problem that's in front of us. They don't talk specifically about police brutality or about police killings. They don't talk about white supremacy. They don't talk about racism or anti-black racism. They make more kind of sweeping gestures to the need for unity or the need for inclusivity. Um, Those are important things, but I think at this precise moment, if we're going to really understand and reckon with what's going on in our country, we have to be really precise and specific about what's going on Uh, and then I think we need not just statements but we need action and so I think that's where a lot of these statements have fallen short is it's not enough just to post something on your website or post something on Twitter these kind of institutions whether it's a university or a corporation if they want things to happen differently a year from now five years from now they need to make real action
0: and as you just mentioned and I think you go on to talk about in the article um you talk about the structural and legal barriers
1: that black Americans face um could you flesh that out please Sure. Um, So when folks talk about structural racism, the thing, and this would be scholars like myself, the thing we're trying to move away from is the idea that racism is just a matter of individual prejudice. Um, So you can imagine if I just sort of snap my fingers and all of a sudden racism were to go away, so everyone sort of individually would give up their racist attitudes, that actually wouldn't solve the problem of racism in the country. Um, Racism isn't just a matter of people's hearts and minds and their own individual prejudice, but it's a matter of the policies that have been put in place in our country over the last Number of generations that have largely funneled resources away from communities of color and towards white communities. That's why we see the massive gaps in, in wealth and income in the United States. It's why we see large disparities in um, average lifespan and uh, and uh, healthcare and um, quality of life for minority communities. It's those structural barriers, the things that. Limit access to jobs, housing, schools. Those are the things that activists are out in the streets fighting right now, in addition to police brutality.
0: I thought it would be interesting to look at some of the work you did, I believe, with regards to the issue of busing. And in it, you go on to discuss this idea of de jure and de facto segregation, and I believe de jure and de facto racism um, at large. Do you think you could um, briefly explain what those concepts mean? And do you think that these two terms are being kind of conflated? Today, or how are they coming into the conversation today?
1: Sure, that's a big question. Let me see if I can uh, kind of take it on. Um, so, in the context of school segregation, uh, de jure segregation would be the kind of segregation that was ruled against in Brown versus Board. And we can think here about the way in which schools were structured in the South, the Jim Crow South, where you would have clearly identified white schools and clearly identified black schools. So, de jure segregation is segregation by law brown versus board was meant to overturn that kind of segregation say schools across the country could not officially send black kids to one school and and white kids to another school the south of course fought back very strongly against that they took very few uh, proactive steps in the first decade after brown versus board to do anything about it but at least the supreme court did did rule on it in brown versus board what you end up finding about 10 years after brown versus board and this is by the mid-1960s, is that school districts across the North, Midwest, and West, as well as a lot of school districts in the South, start saying, you know, we don't have de jure segregation anymore. This isn't official legal segregation. We just have de facto segregation. And what they mean by de facto is that they'd say it either comes by, by customs or by people's preferences, that black people just prefer to live in this neighborhood white people just prefer to live in this neighborhood it might come from market forces that this is just where people happen to buy homes and happen to send their kids to school um but largely the goal of of pushing that idea of de facto segregation was to say that we're innocent for white politicians and white homeowners was to say we're innocent of the of the stain or the the now illegal um um Practice of having segregated schools. It's a way to let their schools off the hook. Um, It means that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 can't apply to those schools in the same way as it applied to schools in the South. And what you end up seeing, this is true over the decades since the 1960s, southern schools actually did a better job of integrating from the 60s through about the 1990s than schools outside of the South because. The Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus Board actually gave um, the federal government a stick to be able to withhold funds from from those schools and to enforce to force them to to integrate. Outside of the South, because so many schools refused to admit that they were segregated, they would blame it on market forces or the preferences of homeowners. It was very very difficult to enforce uh, school school desegregation laws, um, and that's where busing came in. So busing was one tactic that courts would use to try to. Uh, promote school integration. So they would bus uh, kids from one neighborhood to another neighborhood to try to change the racial demographics of schools. Um, it became very unpopular among white communities because they saw it as a threat to their um, sort of inherited privileges privileges with regards to, to homes and schools. As it plays out in the present, um, I think we're living in a world that was largely created by what I would call the northern version of racism. Um, so it's there is still the the very explicit Um, kind of racism we would associate with the south where people are free to use racial epithets you you would fly the confederate flag and and be kind of openly racist in in public we still see some of that um, but it's much less um, accepted today than it was generations ago but what is accepted is the, the sort of northern version of racism the kind of de facto version of racism where you would say you know it just so happens that all of our neighborhoods in this in this city are segregated. It just so happens that this is a white school and a black school. We didn't do it on purpose. It's just a, an accident. Um, that remains very hard to push back against. It's very hard to bring those kind of cases to court and have <clears throat> courts rule against them. Um, and so I think as we try to grapple with that in the present, I think it's important to both understand that history, but also understand that a lot of this kind of turns on the rhetoric we use to, to describe segregation and racism in the country. Um, that it's not always going to look like the Jim Crow South and be that easy to kind of point to and say this is wrong. That often it happens through code words, whether that's busing or neighborhood schools, that are used to perpetuate uh, racial hierarchies.
0: And I'd like to bring the conversation back to um, the topic at hand, obviously police brutality. Um, and I'd just like to ask about the idea of sy- systemic racism. I it seems like it's an incredibly partisan issue um, in the States. And for example, there was a 2018 poll by the Public Religion Research Institute, and it found that a majority of Democrats, I believe it was around 70%, um, believe that police um, treatment of black people is part of a wider pattern, while the opposite was true of Republicans. And recently it was also found, I mean, sorry, recently um, Attorney Gen- General William Barr, um, a prominent Republican figure, publicly said that he doesn't believe that American policing is systemically racist. So why is this such a partisan issue and how does
1: one reckon with that um, in the context of finding truth? That's another really good question. So I think it's a partisan issue because how you interpret what's happening in our country, particularly with regards to police killings of African Americans, depends a lot on how you interpret evidence. Um, so, if you interpret each of these incidents, just in the last year, um, as isolated cases, cases of, of bad cops, bad apples um, that took out sort of extraordinary violence against African Americans, then it seems like it's not a pattern. Um, it seems like if we just if we just fire the bad cops. Right, or, or train train the cops slightly better, then things will, will improve. Um, I think that's a position that allows you to think that systemic racism isn't a real thing. Um, and it's a appealing position for a lot of people because it puts a lot of onus on individual action, individual responsibility, um, and shifts a lot of onus away from um, how institutions have come to be structured and to perpetuate um, these kind of patterns of behavior. So a different way of viewing it and a different way of considering evidence would be seeing the patterns that emerge over generations. Um, So you could look back over the last hundred years and choose any year, uh, and you would find examples of police killing African Americans. Those don't always receive the kind of national attention we're seeing right now, or the kind of national attention we saw during the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests in the mid-2010s, but all the evidence is there. Um, And so for folks who like myself, who believe that systemic racism is a a real issue and who believe that uh, police departments are part of that um, structure of systemic racism. Those killings are not just a case of a few bad apples within police departments or a handful of people who hold racist views, but it's an institution in terms of the police that's been set up to treat black communities in certain ways, in ways that they don't treat white communities. And that leads regularly, cyclically, to violence. Um, it can be kind of minor cases of violence, um, the kind of over-policing that we see on an almost everyday basis. But then at least multiple times a year, it leads to these deadly confrontations. And so I think it's it remains a partisan issue because so many things in our country are, are partisan right now, but it really, I think, comes down to what where you draw um, the lines around what you count as evidence. So if you have experiences in your family or your community where you you know that these things happen regularly, um, you're more likely to see this as, as a pattern. Um, if, this, if the only time you ever think about this is the handful of times it shows up on the news, it's a lot easier to see it as isolated events.
0: I see, yeah. And I, I think something that's important about this issue is that obviously it's not just um, about statistics, it's about you know human stories. And when I was reading about this issue, and, and just generally, I mean, there were interviews where I believe there was a 14 year old um, black teenager and he's saying that, you know, when he sees a police officer, he is, he's scared. And of course you can't capture that in statistics. And so um, I'd like to maybe bring it um, back to your, your personal history. And for our listeners, it might be relevant to note that um, Professor Delmont actually grew up in Minneapolis, but I'll obviously let you take from here and maybe you could just, I guess, color this
1: um, with some of your personal experiences. Sure. Um, Yeah, I think for myself as a historian uh, and as a black American, I can't really pull apart those two identities um and so my mind's been kind of all over the place the last last few weeks um i grew up downtown minneapolis about three miles away from where george floyd was killed um i thankfully didn't have any direct negative interactions with the minneapolis police growing up but i know from a very young age i would say eight or ten my dad told me stories about um how he was beaten up fairly regularly by the minneapolis police how he and he and his buddies were um and so i always had that as sort of part of my knowledge of how Police departments could and often did interact with with black with black people, um, and this is well before I became a scholar of it and had the sort of research language to be able to be able to talk about it. Um, and I would say, again, it kind of goes back to how you see how you see evidence. Um, if you grow up with those kind of stories or with that kind of knowledge, you start to interpret the world around you differently. Um, and I would say it's something you never really shake. So I, I'm 42 now. I'm a tenured uh, named chair at dartmouth right so i'm a pretty fancy pretty fancy position um hanover is a very kind of quiet and calm place in almost every regard but still when i drop my kids off at elementary school and i see the uh, police officers out there sometimes for the kind of community meet and greets i still tense up Um, it's not something you ever can kind of fully move away from and i think that's what i think a lot of americans are coming to to recognize right now folks who don't have Family histories or family stories of of police violence in their family that they see these repeated cases on on the news and realize this just isn't right and something has to change.
0: Yeah, and on that note, something having to change. I think we've discussed um, to an extent, you know, the problems underlying and um, this issue. Obviously, there's much more to be discussed, but I, I'd like to bring the conversation to um, I think the deferring opinions of activists. So even within the activist movements, um, and, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but There are some activists who say that, you know, it's fundamentally impossible to correct these um, systemic racist um, actions and beliefs that you see in police departments, and they would instead prefer to simply, you know, abolish these police departments wholesale. So what is your view on this debate within the activist movement between reform and dismantling or defunding the police?
1: I think, to be honest, I'm still formulating my own opinion. Um, This isn't my... Police reform, police abolition isn't my research area. Um, and so I'm trying to educate myself in the last couple of weeks. I'm um, definitely of a mind that things have to change. Um, and that if, if this is going to be a turning point, um, there has to be more substantive change than just the kind of reforms around the edges that we've seen in different communities over the last several decades. So things like body cameras, things like hiring more black police or, or Latino police, um, things like diversity training for police. Communities have tried those. They haven't really changed uh, changed the outcomes in many places. Minneapolis tried a lot of these things. It didn't really change the outcomes. So I'm increasingly of the mind that more substantive changes are needed. Um, the thing I've really been trying to educate myself on is what that looks like in kind of one-year, three-year, five-year time horizons. Um, I think it's hard right now, The um, if you look back at the Black Lives Matter movement, in 2016, they put forward a, a whole host of policy suggestions that are really quite detailed and and, and rigorous. Um, those don't translate neatly into a soundbite, and so I think one thing that's gotten lost in the media right now with the sort of defund the police or abolish the police um, is that there's whole policy histories and books and articles that are behind those um, behind those slogans that have been building for for over a decade. Um, I'm trying to read up on them myself and sort of get my my own bearings. But I think that's the I think for folks who want to see substantive changes think that's what we need to do over this next several months is identify what in each kind of community is going to work and what kind of time horizon it's going to to work over um yeah i think I'll, i'll leave it there
0: yeah no thank you um and i think we mentioned this idea of this being a turning point and of course this is tinged with like this i guess underlying knowledge that of course this issue resurfaces and then goes, you know, dark for, for a while, and then, you know, unfortunately, an incident occurs where it resurfaces again. And I was wondering whether you thought that the international nature of these protests now, um, this being fairly unprecedented, do you think that this is kind of going to cement this as a real turning
1: point? Um, I, I think it's really hard to say right now. Um, I think this is a, a unique... Moment in terms of, of protest, um, in the U.S. context, to have this many protests happening simultaneously, um, I think over 700 different communities, cities, and towns have protested, from small towns here in New Hampshire to, um, I think there were something like two dozen protests last weekend in New York City. Um, even during the height of the civil rights movement, you didn't have that many protests happening all at the same time. Um, so I think that that's unprecedented. And then to, taking it globally, the fact that these protests are happening all around the world um that's remarkable um and i think that's that's definitely unprecedented um in terms of being a turning point i think the the verdict is is still out we're not going to know for for several months maybe even several years whether this is or is not a turning point i think some of the initial things that are happening the fact that minneapolis um their city council had vowed to um disband the police that's currently structured and, and find a different way the fact that i think minneapolis uh denver maybe portland i think have severed the ties between uh their schools their public schools and police those are things that i don't think would have been possible three weeks ago um, i think they, they took kind of massive street protests to make that happen um as a historian who's seen these things kind of come up cyclically um protests and demands and then the media cycle changes and and people lose interest i i do remain some somewhat skeptical that this will be a significant turning point um because i think you could have said trayvon martin should be the t- turning point uh, freddie gray should be the turning point michael brown should be the turning point uh, charleston should be the turning point um i think i think if it is going to be a turning point it really re- relies on on all of us to to harness the kind of political and moral will to to make it so right that i think people have to have to say that even when the next sort of media story comes up that this remains a top policy priority
0: And with that, I'd like to move on to, I guess, delve into the history of this issue a little bit more. I know that you mentioned that going back maybe even 100 years into history, we can see that this topic of police brutality um, being disproportionately inflicted upon black Americans has been a theme. And I think for this generation, it goes back to, you know, for example, um, Eric Garner. And I want to ask how far back does police brutality against African Americans really go? And how much do um, you, what do you wish that students knew about this topic or people generally knew about this topic that is kind of overlooked?
1: Yeah, so I think in its modern form, um... This kind of police treatment of African-American communities goes back about a century. The police departments came to take on their kind of modern structure around the 1910s, 1920s. And so in this modern form, I would say it goes back about a century. You can trace it back much further, though, if you broaden the category out to white authorities uh, using violence to try to control African-Americans. That goes all the way back into, into slavery and then into to Reconstruction. But I think in terms of the modern era, I'd say it's about a, about a century. Um, it dovetails with the sort of kind of policies, the federal policies of segregation that created black ghettos in cities like New York, Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles. Um, that was through uh, housing policies that blocked African-Americans from being able to live in different neighborhoods and sort of consolidate them all in certain communities. Um, and then police departments would typically over-police those Black communities because they thought they were sites of um, particular amounts of, of crime or, or vice, um, and they wanted to kind of police the boundaries, literally police the boundaries of those Black communities to make sure that the, what they would term the negative elements didn't get out into the, the larger larger city. Um, those, that kind of over-policing um, was an everyday occurrence for Black communities, and so that's where the relationship between most black communities and the police department um has soured beyond repair because this has been happening for for generations um it only kind of bubbles up into uprisings or or rebellions um every kind of generation or so um, but we can see examples of it in 1935 with a, a Harlem riot or rebellion um there were a number of protests during 1943 during the uh during World War II um a number during the 1960s and of course um hundreds in 1968 so they, it's kind of a, a steady drumbeat on an everyday basis that bubbles up into um, a really prominent issue um, every generation or so. Um, I think the problem is that, or one problem, is that police departments have been able to make themselves almost untouchable um, across the political spectrum. So it's very hard for either a Democrat or a Republican to say anything negative about a police department or to threaten to uh, withhold funding or decrease funding for police. It's one of those things that takes up larger and larger portions of uh, budgets, municipal budgets in cities all across the country. And so I think that's one of the kind of things, one of the kind of cruxes of what's going on right now is that you have um, police departments that have become much, much more powerful in the last sort of three or four decades, running up against communities that just refused to take the kind of treatment they received um, as kind of second-class uh, attacked citizens.
0: I'm sorry, I might have missed something there, but um, could you flesh out the idea of how exactly these police departments are so powerful, and especially in the context of um, justice and how you get justice for individuals who are murdered by police?
1: Yeah, um, thanks. I, I should have clarified that more. So... One thing that happens after the, the riots and rebellions of the late 1960s, um, President Nixon's elected in 1968, and he runs on a law and order platform, um, which we've seen President Trump reintroduce a lot of that language uh, recently. What that does is it gives mayors a lot more leverage to demand more resources for their police departments, um, because it it's largely kind of couched in terms of if we're going to keep our cities safe, we have to prevent the next riot from happening. If we're going to present the, the next rat from happening we have to uh, police these in their words dangerous african-american communities we have to keep them keep them in their place from that point from the early 1970s really through today police departments just kind of keep accruing more and more resources and more and more power Um, so by the 1990s they start to get more and more um, military-grade weapons um, to fight drug wars and fight what are rising homicide rates at the time um, in the 2000s, terrorism become, becomes a larger issue, and police departments start to take on sort of part, of, part of that work as well. Um, and at the same time, they have very powerful unions that make it very, very difficult to uh, investigate or prosecute uh, cases of, of police brutality. Um, so it's very, very hard to bring officers to justice, even when there's video evidence of their, of their wrongdoing. One of the more common outcomes is for uh, cities to have to settle these cases uh, either in court or out of court. So the city of of uh, Chicago has had to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for, to settle uh, police brutality cases that might have been better better addressed by having a, a police department that wasn't going to, to be violent against their black citizens in the first place.
0: I'd now like to move to discussing broadly how race and racism are discussed in the media, in higher education, and I guess just in the popular consciousness as a whole. And I'd like to start this by asking, um, or rather by, by stating that, um, I believe you said that when discussing um, civil rights and African-American history, it's important not just to focus on the quote martyrs and marches. So I'd like to ask, who's the figure and that you wish that students and the general public
1: knew more about? That's a great question. So that quote comes from my last book project, which is a project called Black Quotidian, um, which actually started in the context of the Black Lives Matter protests in 2016. um, Because I found myself in the classroom after, I think it was after the shooting of Walter Scott um, in South Carolina, um, trying to give my students historical context for it, right? I'm a historian, so that's what I do, right? Things happen, I try to provide historical context for for what's going on. Um, But it I increasingly found it to be almost counterproductive. Um, I could talk to students about the history of lynching. I could talk to them about Emmett Till. I could talk to them about the Rodney King beating and how that was videotaped. And that's sort of an, an earlier iteration of what we see going on right now. Um, I could talk to them about the anti-lynching campaigns of IDB Wells. But I found at the end that it was almost exhausting for myself and exhausting for the students to focus that much on death on on black death. And so I was trying to look for an alternative to kind of keep my own bearings as a, as a human being, but also keep my bearings as a, as a historian. And so what I ended up doing was for this black quotidian project, um, which is a a website that folks can, can go to. And it's now a um, digital publication from Stanford, but it's entirely open access. So you can find it online. Um, I went to historical black newspapers, which are all digitized and Dartmouth students have access to them through our library's website um, and found a different story from each day, in um, these different newspapers so some stories were from the 1930s some were from the 1950s some were from the the 10s the 1950s or 60s um, and try to find some story that surprised me in some way um, and then write a short post about it so to kind of circle back to your initial question someone i wish students knew more about one of the people i was really thrilled to learn more about was a woman named oral washington um, who was probably the greatest uh, female athlete of the 1930s maybe the best Uh, athlete overall of the 1930s. Um, She was both the best basketball player and also the best uh, tennis player of her era. Um, This is a time when both those sports were segregated. Um, So she didn't compete against white tennis players, but she routinely won the black tennis championship nationally. And then she was the star basketball player on a team that was sponsored by the Philadelphia Tribune newspaper. So they were kind of like the Yukon Huskies of their day. They traveled all over the Northeast and the Midwest and just blew out all these other uh, women's basketball teams. Um, So I think she is someone I wish more people knew about. But part of the idea of the project was getting students to know more about African-American history than just Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. Those are very, very important, iconic figures. But I think to really appreciate the nuances and complexity of black history, you have to understand that there were people in, in every sort of field. There were, were dentists, there were dancers, there were uh, people doing everything you can imagine. You could think of bird watchers. It's an example we've seen recently in Central Park. Um, those those are also important parts of African-American history. So it's not just the martyrs, like George Floyd and Emmett Till, um, not just the marches like we're seeing right now, but it's also these kind of everyday um, moments when people find joy. I think that's what can sometimes fall out of African-American history.
0: I appreciate that. And um... I guess as an international student, I mean, of course, I admit that my education about American history as a whole, um, and probably in particular African-American history, is um, not as much as it should be. And obviously the person that comes to my mind when talking about this is Martin Luther King. And it's interesting to see how Martin Luther King is invoked um, in the protest today and in general, in general, the conversation today. So what are your thoughts on Martin Luther King being invoked in the conversation right now?
1: Yeah, so one of the big frustrations for me and for a lot of other African American historians is how people are very quick to quote Martin Luther King without necessarily reading Martin Luther King. Um, So it's one of these kind of uh, easily quotable figures, but he wrote pages and he wrote books and books and pages and pages and gave sermon after sermon and speech after speech. There's so much thought there um, that, I wish people spent more time really digging into his his work and his words before they felt free to, to quote him. Um, one of the things I find most frustrating is that people will usually quote him one or two ways right now to try to condemn uh, the kind of riots or, or uprisings that we see. Um, they'll have, have him talking about the importance of nonviolence, um, which was definitely true. He had a nonviolent philosophy, um, but he also understood that you had to be if you're going to be mad about riots you have to be as mad about the conditions that cause the riots as you are about the riots themselves um, the other thing people often quote is the part of the i have a dream speech which is his most famous speech from 1963 at the march on washington um, where he says he wants to make sure that his children and everyone are judged not by the color of their skin but by the content of their character um, it's a very powerful sentiment because it, it expresses this kind of colorblind ideal that a lot of americans uh, want to hold and kind of wish our country could achieve. Um, but what frustrates me about that is that people will quote that, but that's a one line from an 18 minute speech. Um, and that if you actually read the rest of the speech, you see a lot more references to things that we would now term structural racism, including uh, the horrors of police brutality. So he explicitly says that, the, uh, that black people can't be free until the horrors of police brutality are, are addressed. And so circling back, When people quote King now, I wish that and I want them to be reading and engaging with King's ideas deeply and recognizing all the ways in which he was fighting against things in the 1960s, he and that generation of of activists were fighting against things in the 1960s that are still with us today, right? So basically quote the right King, not the wrong King.
0: I see, okay. Okay. Um, and of course, I mean, your, one of your specializations is on how race is covered in the media, and I think that couldn't be more relevant today. Um, and so I, I'd like to bring it back to your previous research surrounding busing, in which you talk about how um, the black and the white press um, covered the issue of busing, uh, and this led to, in different ways, and this led to Deferring narratives on the issue at hand. So I want to ask you, um, how do you see the media and deferring news sources covering the protests today and covering the topics of race and racism today? And how do you think this affects how people um,
1: see and consume these topics? <clears throat> it's a good question. So I think, I think by and large, the media has actually done a pretty good job in the last three weeks of covering. Uh, the protests, and I think in part because there's so many more media outlets right now than there were in the 1960s, where you might just have three network news and a handful. Of, you'd have a lot of national, I'm sorry, a lot of local newspapers, but only a couple of national newspapers. I think there's so many different outlets right now that we're seeing different slices of the of the story. And so I think the important thing for uh, media consumers is to consume a lot of different news sources so you can get different different pieces of the story. One of the things I appreciate that the media is doing right now is focusing on a lot of the local activists. So the Black Lives Matter um, movement is purposely decentralized. So they they don't have a Martin Luther King type figure um, that they're trying to put forward as the single spokesperson for the movement. And I think as a result of that, news media has had to talk to people on the ground in Baltimore and New York and Chicago to understand what's bringing them out in the streets and how how they've been been organizing. And I think that's That's important and powerful. These kind of local stories you didn't see a lot of those in the 1960s. Historians have kind of gone back and done more research to to foreground some of those stories, but by and large, at the national level, they focus on King and a handful of other um, kind of elite figures. Um, I also appreciate the media has spent more time talking about the role of young people um, and and queer organizers than they did previously. If I could have a critique or a concern, um, it's I guess a couple things that media still tends to want to put things into kind of neatly discrete categories. Um, So I think among activists, you'll often see um, a split of, or stories that presented as either folks who are wholly outside of the political system, who are unwilling to vote for anyone, um, and or folks who uh, favor only kind of reform positions and are uh, very happy to be voting for, for Joe Biden. Where I think for most people, I'm guessing for most people who are protesting right now, they fall somewhere in the middle there, um, that they <clears throat> believe real structural changes are needed, but also recognize that we have a two-party system and needs to be, if you want to see changes happen, it has to be engaged with, with in some way. Um, my other concern with the media is that the media tends to get bored of stories pretty quickly. Um, media cycles change, and so if we if we use history as a guide in the civil rights era um, there was quite a bit of coverage of of civil rights activists but then very quickly the stories became about the white quote-unquote backlash to civil rights Um, and this was partly the the white anti-busing protesters Um, and they explicitly a lot of the news journalists were saying explicitly saying you know we spent a lot of time with the the black protesters but we don't know much about this white silent majority and so now we need to go cover, cover them just a few years ago there was a, quite a bit of coverage of Black Lives Matter in the mid-2010s, and then Trump got elected. And so then media spent a lot of time with these profiles of rural white Trump voters and kind of trying to understand how did how did the media miss this story? And so my concern is that the media in another week or so will get bored of the protests and bored of police killings and move on to another another story.
0: I see. Yes, no. And um, I guess you could say that it, it's sad that this topic won't be helping in the media for you know a large amount of time it seems like and it seems like a lot of the burden on education in terms of this issue would fall upon you know teachers um, professors um, I guess activists and organizations who hold this issue close to them so I wanted to bring the topic of discussion back to the classroom for a second and I've read that in the classroom you like to talk you like to um, educate in a multimedia fashion could you flesh out what exactly that is and the benefits you see of that?
1: Sure. Um, so in, in part because a lot of my research involves media, um, I try to bring that into the classroom. So in a circle context, that means trying to show students uh, different TV news footage from the 1950s and 60s so they can get a sense of how people viewed this at, at the time. Um, trying to bring in a lot of photographs, protest flyers, um, just to try to get students to understand the history isn't just the written document. Um, written documents are obviously important, but that, uh there have always been many, many different types of media that have have shaped history. And that, I know for myself as a student, I responded, I could make sense of things more quickly um, if I was exposed to different types of things. Um, So I I almost envision it as like trying to put down ladders for different learning styles. So some students will respond to to songs, some students will respond to video clips, some students will respond to to photographs or artwork, and then some students will respond to the traditional text documents. And so trying to incorporate all of those and try to see how these different puzzle pieces can be fit together, um, I think is really important. Moving into the present, I also ask students to find contemporary sources that they see connecting to things we're talking about in class. And I think that's important because I think the big challenge we have in our present world is media literacy and being able to discern what counts as evidence and how people are using that evidence to advance arguments or how they're advancing arguments without any evidence to support it. Uh, Even among very, very smart, educated people, that's still a challenge. Um, I think we have so much information bombarding us all the time, asking students to kind of take a step back from the contemporary media environment and engage with a story on immigration or a story on police brutality and understand, okay, who's quoted in the story and who's the audience for the the website or the um, documentary or the uh, news story that's being produced. And how can we use this as a historical source? Like, what does this tell us about what's going on right now and how can we connect it to what we've seen historically? Um, it makes teaching more fun to me and I, hopefully for my, for my students, they, they enjoy it as well.
0: And um, while we're on the topic, I'd like to quickly Um, discuss how race, and specifically um, being a black American and a black scholar, how that interacts with, um, I guess, academia as a whole. And I'd like to point to a tweet that was incredibly powerful to me um, that you put out um, recently in which you said that you felt you aren't considered a, quote, real historian. Um, Could you explain your thoughts surrounding that?
1: Sure. Um, So it was in response to a hashtag called Black and the Ivory, um, which was created by two um, African-American women, black scholars who Wanted to kind of surface some of the things that people talk about in small groups, but don't often talk about in public uh, among uh, black faculty and other faculty of color, which is just the fact that if you were to read a lot of news stories about what happens on college campuses, you would think college campuses are these kind kind of uh, flaming bastions of liberalism, right? And that they're sort of gone, sort of too far off the off the progressive progressive edge. Um, That might be true in some campuses and some quarters, but the the kind of lived experience of a lot of black faculty is places that might pride themselves on being progressive on the surface um, can actually be very, very hostile workplaces. Um, And just reading through some of the things that people posted on that Twitter thread were were remarkable, the way in which colleagues would dismiss them in meetings or say, snide or racist things the a whole host of things are are there my contribution was it that was that no matter how many books or articles um i'm still not considered by some people a real historian Um, part of that's disciplinarily my phd is in american studies which is an interdisciplinary program and so um historians i think as a field tend to be kind of small c conservative they like things as they always have been um and so i think for some historians my use of uh T V as a as a primary source. Um so a couple of my books use a lot of uh, period footage from the nineteen fifties and sixties as primary sources. That's uh unusual for some for some historians. Um but I don't think it's coincidental that um a lot of his a lot of historians of color get their training in interdisciplinary programs where that's Latino studies programs or American studies or African American studies, because history as a discipline hasn't been particularly welcoming to, um, uh, scholars of color. And so that kind of boundary policing that we see in that I see in my discipline where people say, Oh, that, that person's not a real historian. They're not doing real historical work. It often dovetails with, with race, right? It, it just so happens that the person they're referring to is doing uh, native American history or, latinx history or in my case african-american history um i worry less about it now because um, i am a full professor and <laughs> don't, don't really need to stress about it um but it's still it, just at a professional level it it uh it's a it's frustrating um to see these kind of biases remain um this in in 2020. So. Um, I think what it means for me when I think about teaching in a place like Dartmouth is there's still r- very real challenges that we have with regards to diversifying the faculty. So I think I would include Dartmouth in terms of organizations that uh, put forward statements that their track record uh, could use a lot of improvement. Um, Dartmouth, I think we have maybe a dozen tenured black faculty. Um, I'm not even sure if we have that many. Um, it's about, I think and a half four percent of the total faculty is african-american about about the same number as is latino um so we're the college is well short of its goals in terms of having a more diverse faculty the student body is much more diverse than the than the faculty is and i think that's a it's a a matter of of leadership and political will Uh, i think if if a college like dartmouth this is true of the previous places i've worked as well um if you want to hire more faculty of color you would make it a priority and you would get it done. Um, and so it, it frustrates me that it takes a kind of crisis moment like this for people to issue statements and to, to hopefully put in place plans to, um, to hire more, more faculty of color. Um, but I think we, we have to work with the crises we have. And so um, hopefully this can be a moment that colleges like Dartmouth, and Dartmouth is definitely not the only one, but colleges like Dartmouth can, can do more to uh, hire a more diverse faculty.
0: I oh, see, thank you for sharing that. Now, um, just to end off, um, I'd like to ask, um, or I guess i point out that, I mean, a theme in your work, and we've discussed this, is basically how we uh, mythologise history and how we look over certain things. And obviously, this event is one for the history books, and you know we've discussed that, this being a possible turning point. So I'd like to ask, in what ways do you think that recent events um, will be remembered in um, let's say, I know, 20, 30 years into the future? And what important parts of the narrative do you think may be um, forgotten or may not be emphasized as much? I know it's a bit of a hypothetical question, but...
1: I think it's a great one. Um, I I mean, one thing I've been telling my students is that this is definitely a moment that is going to be, it's going to shape the the future of our country and it's going to be taught in history classes for the rest of our lives. Um, I think a challenge is going to be, looking 30 years on, Trying to remember just viscerally what it was like to to live right now, to be in lockdown for nearly three That's something that hasn't happened in uh, nearly a century—and um, then to come out of that and have street protests that are unlike anything we've seen in, in generations. Um, that getting pe- giving people a sort of a, tent, a sense of the the kind of everyday. Uh, tenor of, of american and in, in world life right now i think it's going to be is going to be really important um i think i think maybe I'm sure people don't lose sight of the the racial discrepancies in the covid um epidemic i think are important the way in which uh working class and particularly black latino communities have been particularly hard hit um, i think that will be important um i think Having people see the killing of George Floyd and the other ones that have happened recently as part of a, as part of a pattern, um, and tr- just drawing the line back even a decade to Trayvon Martin and the Black Lives Matter movement that came out in the the mid 2010s, because I think this current generation has really kind of grown up with protest. Um, I think it could be easy uh, 30 years from now to to just treat 2020 as sort of a isolated thing or kind of treat the Trump years as somehow separate. But I think if we think about sort of the Obama years and everything that happened there and then where we are right now, um, I think that would be a more kind of fully realized vision. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, it, obviously having no idea how any of this is going to turn out, um, if, if Biden were to be elected in November, um, I think not, when we look back, not seeing that as somehow the solution to the problem. Um, That These kind of problems have existed under Democratic presidents and under Republican presidents, existed under Obama. Um, And so I think it could be easy uh, 30 years from now to sort of see the end of the Trump era as somehow the the moment that kind of America righted its ship in some way. Um, But I think these are part of the challenge of fighting against structural issues is that they remain structural issues regardless of which party is in power.
0: Well, Professor Delmont, thank you so much for joining us and thanks for your openness.
1: Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Really great questions. Yeah, thank
0: you. Uh, Thanks for listening and please join us next week.